Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Your answer to that question is eternally significant. Some say that he was a good teacher or a wise prophet. Some say that he was just a man. Others say he was just a god. Some say that he was crazy, a lunatic. Some say that he was a fraud, a liar. But in every generation, there have been those who have said, he is Lord. He's our Savior. He's the God-man. The question for each of us today is this. What do you say? Who is Jesus? Today, I'm going to start a uh, sermon series that I'll continue each time I get to preach. And the series is going to walk through the completed I am statements in the Gospel of John. They're spoken by Jesus. These statements are his own self-declaration of who he is and what he's come to do, his identity, his nature, his purpose. The statements we're looking at are considered completed, where I am is followed by a metaphor. But there is another set of I am statements to consider, and these are standalone statements where Jesus simply says, I am, or I am he. What does that remind you of? Think back to Exodus 3, when Moses is encountering God in the burning bush, and God reveals himself by the name Yahweh, which is Hebrew for I am who I am. Or in the book of Isaiah, when God says things like this, I am the Lord, and I will act that you may know that I am he. Then when you consider John's gospel and the purpose of the grand narrative, how Jesus reveals the Father that you may believe and have life in his name. We begin to see that when Jesus uses the phrase, I am, this is a claim of deity. He's identifying himself with God. He's saying, I am one with the Father. So just a few examples of that. In chapter 6, when he's walking on the water and the disciples see him, what does he say? He says, I am. Do not be afraid. Or in chapter 8, he says, before Abraham was, I am. And what happens? The religious leaders pick up stones to throw at him because they think he's just committed blasphemy. We see this powerfully in chapter 18, an amazing scene, when the soldiers come to arrest Jesus, and they're asking, are, are you Jesus? He says, I am. And at those words, the soldiers fall down to the ground. You could read about it in chapter 18. How powerful is that? The words of the divine causing men to fall down. Well, Christ's identity as the divine Son of God is essential for him to be our Savior and our Lord. But his words of power are also words of comfort. 
One way Jesus lovingly reveals his identity to us as Savior is through these completed I am statements, which is the ones that we're going to be looking at in this sermon series. Why has the divine put on flesh and entered our world? There's seven of these statements, um, which in the Bible is often symbolic for completeness, wholeness, or fullness. And so when we look at the seven I am statements of Jesus, we get a vivid, full-orbed picture of who he is. So just as a preview to where we're going, these seven I am statements start today with, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the resurrection and the life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And I am the true vine. This is going to be a rich time looking at Jesus explaining and revealing who he is. With each sermon, we're going to do three main things. We're going to unpack the metaphor, its basic meaning and idea. We'll see how the statement fits in with both the Old Testament and as it's further developed in the New Testament, and we'll apply it to our lives today, asking what does this aspect of Jesus' ministry mean for you today? So today we begin in John chapter 6, when Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He teaches about bread that endures, how you get it, and how you live it. So let's pray for God to bless this time in his word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from your mouth. Feed us today by your word that we might see Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. So open up to John chapter 6. We're going to read a lengthy passage. It's a very rich passage, packed with comforting, challenging, and strengthening truths. John chapter 6, verses 22 to 59, starting in 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there, and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they, they themselves got into the boats and went to Capernaum seeking Jesus." So the day before, he's just fed the 5,000 on the mountainside, miraculously multiplying bread and fish to feed a crowd. People are seeking him because they want more of this stuff. But after providing for their physical needs, their physical food, Jesus gives them a lesson on spiritual food. Let's pick up in verse 25. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, 
This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. So they said to him, well, then what sign do you do that we may see and believe you? What work do you perform? Our fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. As it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. So Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And they said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Just a, a quick break here as... Jesus is teaching, we might expect at this point for mass revival to be breaking out. People repenting of their earthly mindedness and bowing down to Jesus. But here is where, along with a comforting, comforting truth, comes a difficult teaching. Pick it up in verse 41. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph? whose father and mother we know? How does he say, I have come down from heaven? And Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except he is from God, he has seen the Father. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven, so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the, the fathers ate and died. 
Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Thanks be to God for his word. So Jesus is saying these things in the synagogue during the Passover feast. It's a time of remembrance of God's miraculous deliverance in the Exodus. After Jesus has just provided an abundance of bread on the mountainside from only five loaves, the people begin to realize what's going on. In chapter 6, verse 14, they say, Indeed, this is the prophet that has come into the world. They're beginning to see this prophetic promise that there would be one to come who is a prophet like Moses. So they bring up the manna in the wilderness in Exodus 16. But their question has a sort of prove-it attitude. But Jesus doesn't blink. He says, Truly I say to you, it was not Moses who gave, past tense, you bread from heaven, but my Father gives, present tense, gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So here we see in the plan of God, the one who declares the end from the beginning, as Isaiah 46 teaches us, And from ancient times, things not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand, and I will accomplish all my purpose. Even the provision of manna in the wilderness, way back in Exodus 16, pointed to something greater. It's interesting to think about the city that Jesus was born in, Bethlehem. That's Hebrew. There's two words that make up that city name. The first is Beit, that means house. The second is Lechem. What do you think? Lechem means bread. Lechem means bread. Bethlehem is the house of bread. So in God's ordaining, the true bread from heaven is born in the city of bread. It all works together in his plan. His purpose will stand. But the crowd doesn't quite get it. Uh, their ancestors got bread in the wilderness with Moses for 40 years. Can't Jesus outmatch Moses and give them bread that never runs out? Well, he will, but not in the way that they think. The true bread of heaven endures unto eternal life. This is our first point, bread that endures. So in these I am statements, it's really convenient. Jesus gives us his own illustrations for his teaching. Let's think about bread. Bread is a staple of the diet, especially in early church times. It was so essential that the term bread would often serve as a stand-in for food in general. Bread feeds us. It nourishes us. It strengthens us. It sustains us. Bread is a delight as we enjoy its benefits. And we need it every day. Without bread, we die. It's that simple. And it's miserable. So much so that when we look back at Exodus 16, the Israelites grumbled against Moses in the wilderness, saying, we would have rather died by the hand of the Lord in Egypt when we sat by the meat pots and we ate our bread in full. But you've brought us out into this wilderness to kill the whole assembly with hunger. Food is a motivator. Just ask any parent of young children or middle school boys. Hunger affects our mood. 
and makes us hangry. You're not you when you're hungry, Snickers tells us. Hunger leads people to desperation, to do and say things that we wouldn't normally do or say. So kids, I want to let you in on a little secret here. You know when you're hungry and you want a snack? Maybe you sneak into the kitchen and you pull open that refrigerator door and you see this magical glow come down and you see milk and yogurt and cheese sticks and ham and jelly, what seems to be like this endless supply of food and you eat your fill. You close it, you come back the next day, you open it up and there's more. There's more food in the fridge. It just seems like it appears out of nowhere. Well, here's the secret. Your parents have to buy that food. It doesn't just come out of nowhere. Your parents have to work, go buy the food, bring it home, put it in the fridge, and keep that stock, because there's a cost to feeding you. And that's because our physical bodies in this broken world have to return to the pantry. We have to return to the fridge because the food we eat here doesn't fully satisfy. It doesn't last. I love a good steak. I look forward to breakfast the moment I wake up. But when we eat, a couple hours later, we're hungry again. It doesn't last. So Jesus says in verse 27, don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life. Verse 33, this bread gives life to the world. And here the crowd's getting excited. They think they found the fountain of youth, maybe the golden goose. They found a sustainable resource that never runs out. But as is often the case with Jesus, it's not what they think. They say, give us this bread always. And this is when he says, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. And whoever believes in me shall never thirst. These are words of full satisfaction. This is the food, the bread that endures to eternal life. Just as physical bread sustains us physically, Jesus, the bread from heaven, sustains us spiritually and eternally. And just as the Israelites in the desert suffered from physical hunger, we all suffer from a spiritual hunger. We work and we work and we work to provide for our physical needs, but Jesus says, that's all going to fade away. I want you to take that kind of zeal, that kind of intensity that you have for your physical needs and apply it to your deeper spiritual need. This is a need that is far greater and longer lasting. But if you're in the audience here, you know, maybe you're, you're scratching your head. You're saying, Jesus, how can we feed on you? How is it that you're going to curb my hunger and meet my thirst? How do I get this bread that endures? This is our second point. How do you get the bread that endures? And the short answer is simply this. By faith. It's by faith. Jesus equates coming to him with believing in him. 
Saving faith is believing in him, or as the Bible says in other places, believing into him. That you are now in Christ, and Christ is now in you. And that's the imagery of this bread metaphor. Just as we take bread and we eat it, and it's now inside of us, when we believe in Christ, he comes to dwell in us. He's now inside of us. And he couldn't be any closer. This metaphor shows the intimacy of the union that Christ has with the believer. So if we get bread by faith, well, that kind of begs the question, well, how do we get faith? And it's in this context that we get one of the most clear teachings about how anyone comes to Christ, how anyone believes into, unto him, in him unto salvation, unto eternal life. And here's how I want to break this down. Just like we have physical and spiritual realities, there's two ways to think about this. What's, what it looks like on the surface and what's going on underneath. Let's think about what it looks like on the surface to believe in Christ. I like to think about this as our experiential reality. Looks different for everybody, but in some way or another, God has placed people and circumstances in our lives to teach us about who he is and who we are. So we've got to have some sort of knowledge about God's holiness, our sinfulness, and Christ's righteousness. We read passages like this, and we discover that we need saving. We have a need to come to Jesus, to confess our sins, to proclaim him rightly, as the divine Son of God and Savior of the world, and to be forgiven. Now, for some, you remember a very distinct time in your life when this happened. For others, this has been a more gradual experience for you. But now you can look back and you say, I believe. Not only do I know about God, I know God. I know Christ. So you hear Jesus when he says, I will raise you up on the last day. And you're resting in his finished work and nothing that you can do yourself. You come empty-handed, as Matt encouraged us earlier. You put all your stock, all your trust, all your hope in Jesus for life beyond the grave. And this changes you. Your life reflects that you really believe it. So when the crowd asked Jesus, what works, notice the plural, what works must we be doing to get this bread? He responds like this. This is the work, singular, of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. No amount of good works can gain you eternal life. The only way to get the bread from heaven is to believe this is the work that God requires. But if that's our surface level experience, what's going on underneath? What's going on behind the scenes? Notice in verse 41, after Jesus very plainly explains that he's the true bread from heaven, that whoever looks to him and believes in him whoever, would have eternal life, the people grumble. They don't believe. 
And at this point, they can't believe. A few weeks ago, we had lunch at a family's house after church. And as the food's being prepared, the kids pull out this, this game board that looks like this little air hockey table. And as I look over and I see my son Daniel playing, it looks as if he's just staring at this game and moving the game pieces. It wasn't the force that he was using, but it turns out there were magnets underneath the table. Magnets that the players were using to draw the game pieces where they wanted them to go. What was happening above the surface where we could see was dependent on what was happening underneath the surface that we could not see. And Jesus says in verse 44 here, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is how we reconcile the whosoever believes of the gospel call with the who actually does. Even this faith God requires is not our own doing. Look up just a few verses earlier in verse, verse 37. In this verse, we get to see both what's going on on the surface and underneath. He says this, All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. It's great comfort in this absolute statement from Christ. But let's, let's unpack that. Let's, let's work backwards. Those who are never cast out, well, who are they? Those who are never cast out are the whoever comes. The whoever comes are the will comes. And the will comes are all those that the Father gives. Or in the language of verse 44, those whom the Father draws. This drawing has been understood as effectual calling. An effectual calling that God will accomplish the purpose that he sets out to do. The Spirit of God breathes new life into a heart that was dead. And it's from that new heart that the new man, the new woman, the high school girl, the middle school boy, the precious child, calls out to Jesus in faith and comes to Jesus to feast on the bread of life. Faith is a gift, of course. We read this in Ephesians 2.8. Paul says, it's by grace you have been saved, through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift from God that no one may boast. So how do you get the bread of life? You get it by faith. How do you get faith? You get it by the Father giving it to you. It's probably better to use terms like we receive the bread of life. We receive Christ. And so in this way, when we look up at a previous verse, the work of God is a work of God from the inside out. And yet Jesus says earlier in chapter 3 that as the wind blows and we cannot know from where it comes to where it goes, so it is with the Spirit of God as he accomplishes his work of drawing people to Christ. It's not something we can control. 
not something that we can predict. So that, that begs some questions, doesn't it? How can you know if God has drawn you? How can you know? Well, again, that simple answer with a, a longer explanation, but the simple answer is this. You believe. You believe. Faith is the evidence of God's work in your heart. If no one can believe without the Father giving you the gift of faith, then if you have the gift of faith, the Father has drawn you. So what if you don't believe? Or what if you don't know if you believe? Well, we need to, be, we need to study and be aware of what God's doing underneath the surface. But you and I live our days on the surface, don't we? So instead of dwelling on whether or not the Father has drawn you, maybe we should dwell on whether or not you're looking to Christ. Because no amount of debate, no amount of research can create faith. But if you stare at Christ and you consider who he is, you consider what he's done, you think about what he did on the cross, and how he rose from the dead and how he is seated in heaven. You read the Gospels in the Bible and you learn of his heart for sinners. Talk to other Christians and see what Christ has done for them. If you call out to God and ask him to fill you with faith, or if you come to his table daily, See if he won't make the bread of life sweet to you. See if he doesn't breathe new life in you as you look to Christ and call out to him. So there's a sense that to, to take of the true bread of life is a one-time thing. There's an emphasis of that in this passage. You come to Jesus and believe in him. But there's another sense that we feast upon him regularly, daily, for perseverance in this life. And so I want to close with four points of application on how you live it. How you get bread that endures, now how you live it. This is how you feed on Christ daily. So when we hear Jesus say, I am the bread of life. What should we hear? Well, number one, hear God's faithful provision in the past. This is signaled by the callback to manna in the wilderness. We can look back to God's faithfulness in the past as a call to worship and to strengthen our trust in him in the present. Psalm 143, verses 5 and 6 says this, I remember the days of old. I meditate on all that you have done. I ponder the work of your hands. I stretch out my hands to you. My soul thirsts for you as in a parched land. This is desperation. This is hunger for God from remembering his faithfulness. So what have you seen God do in your life to show his faithfulness to you? What have you seen God do in the lives of others? to draw strength from 
How can you intentionally meditate on God's mighty acts in the past to fill you with hope for the present? That's number one. Number two, when we hear Jesus say, I am the bread of life, what should we hear? Let's hear God's abundant provision in the present. This is signaled by the feeding of the 5,000. Jesus provides for his people. He says this in Matthew 6, 31 through 33. Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? What shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So, we trust God for physical provision. But the call is to do that in the context of the greater purposes of God's kingdom. A greater seeking of God's kingdom. He doesn't want us to get so fixated on our physical needs that we neglect the greater priority of his kingdom. We're called to love the giver more than the gifts. We can't be so focused on what we want from Christ that we miss Christ himself. This, is, this would be like being more interested in an inheritance coming your way than in caring for your aging parents and cherishing every moment that God gives you with them. But yet, as we saw in Matthew 6, in God's economy, when we seek the kingdom of God first, his gifts are added to you. And maybe you're thinking this, well, what, is exactly, what exactly does it mean to take the bread of life and to never hunger again, to never thirst again? Does that mean I'm never going to go through hard times? Does that mean I'm never going to feel unsatisfied or discontent? Well, in the present life, God may call us to walk through trials and deep need for his glory. He calls us to pour ourselves out, to spend and be spent for Christ in such a way that it may warrant great self-sacrifice. In some cases, our own sin and the sin of others may bring painful circumstances. And as God works this process of sanctification, growing us to be more and more like Christ, it's a battle to set our minds on the things above while being faithful to God's calling on our lives in the here and now. It's not as simple as breaking it down to a math equation or an if-then statement. But Paul shares with us the secret, the secret of making it through. Philippians 4, 11 to 13 says this, I've learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound in any and every circumstances. Any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So seeing Christ as our strength is the secret to getting through both the good days and the bad days. Did you catch that? It's not just the bad days, it's the good days too. 
to prevent us from relying so heavily on ourselves that we neglect Christ. But his strength gets us through the bad days. His strength helps us make it through the end of the month when we don't know where our next paycheck is coming from. His strength helps us to persevere in a strained relationship. His strength helps us to keep going when our bodies are breaking down. And his strength helps us to find comfort in loneliness because he's been there. He's been there. This is a fitting analogy for for bread. Psalm 104.15 says this, God gives us bread to strengthen man's heart. Well, he's given the true bread from heaven to strengthen our souls. And he's sufficient. He's abundant. He's fully satisfying. Uh, My friend encouraged me years ago when I learned his devotional practice of saying, when I wake up in the morning, I want to eat spiritually before I eat physically. Practically what that means is I want to read my Bible and spend time with the bread of life before I eat breakfast. How much blessing would we experience if we had that mentality? That when I wake up and I look forward to breakfast right away, would I not look more forward to Christ and to being with him? So that brings us to to application number three. When we hear Jesus say, I am the bread of life, what should we hear? Well, we should think specifically of God's saving provision in Christ on the cross. Look at verse 51. He says this, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is no doubt a reference to the cross. Jesus knew where he was going. He knew that he was on a mission to save his people. So put yourself in the shoes of the audience. This crowd is less interested in Jesus himself and more interested in what he can do for them. It's not so much that the signs that he's performing that intrigue them, but Jesus says it's their full bellies that make them seek him. But Jesus knows we don't just need food and drink. What we need is reconciliation with God. What we need is forgiveness of sin. What we need is righteousness that only Christ can provide. If all we needed was a fix for our our hunger and our thirst in this life, Jesus could have stayed on earth and he could have just kept feeding the 5,000. He could have created a loaf of bread that just mystically replenished itself if that's what he came to do. That's not what he came to do. That speaks to what he came to do and that's to give us an eternal living bread in his own self, in his own provision of righteousness. The bread of life would give his life on the cross. The bread of life died that we might live. The bread of life came down to raise us up. The word became flesh and dwelt among us on earth 
that we might dwell with him in heaven. And that's our last point. When we hear Jesus say, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me will never hunger, whoever believes in me will never thirst, we should hear God's eternal provision for the future. Because our ultimate hope is not in this life, it's in the next. This chapter contains some amazing promises of eternal security. When you think of Jesus as the bread of life, remember these promises. I'm just going to read through several of these promises in John chapter 6. Hear this from your Savior. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. All that the Father give to me will come to me. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And I will lose nothing of all that the Father has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And on that last day, we read in Revelation 19 of the marriage supper of the Lamb, when the church will be clothed in fine linen, presented to Christ as a spotless bride, and we will dine and feast with Christ himself. Hallelujah. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord, we thank you for feeding us with your word this morning. We ask that day in and day out you would nourish us and strengthen us. Lord, we thank you that coming to Christ and receiving forgiveness is not a work that we can perform, but it is your mercy and your grace to draw us to yourself. Lord, without your mercy, without your spirit, none of us would turn to you. None of us would come to you. And yet, you have accomplished what we could not do for ourselves. Lord, we thank you. Would you grant deeper insight, greater strengthening throughout the week as we meditate on your word here, as we consider what Jesus has said And Lord, as we approach the table now, would we get this tangible sign of feasting with Christ and on Christ, would that build us up in faith and strengthen us for the day ahead? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.